Hey guys, Matt Halpern here. This is the first satellite episode of Chocolate Croissants, where sadly, I don't have my two partners, Jordan and Justin, with me because I am in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada, and those two guys are back home in Baltimore. The reason I am in Canada is because I am on tour currently with my band Periphery, and uh, today is a day off. I'm in a hotel room. I believe we're in a Holiday Inn. Uh, near a mall, and that's pretty much what we do on days off. We walk around a mall, we eat food. Something really cool that I did today uh, is for a first time is did hot yoga, and we'll talk about that as I dig into this with our with our guest. Um, and that's really the cool part about this satellite podcast is that we actually have a guest that I'm going to interview. Um, the person I'm going to interview is my very good friend, my touring brother, and Periphery's lighting director, uh, Jeff Holcomb. And uh, Mark Holcomb is Jeff's brother. For those of you who know Periphery, Mark is uh, the guitar player in the band. Jeff has played shows with us on bass. Jeff has sold merch for us on tour. He's done lights for us. And um, we actually, a lot of times, kind of just like having him around because his energy and his personality is just so chill and very, very infectious and easy to be around. And... I kind of, when I thought about bringing on a guest, he was the first one that I wanted to bring on because his story is pretty incredible, and I don't know if he's ever told it to anybody, so that's what we're going to do today. So, um, hi, Jeff. Hey. Hey, guys. What's up? Hi, Matt. How you hi. doing? We've done a bunch of stuff together. I mean, so, I mean, we've toured for years now. Um, you even came out on the first Common Thread Clinic tour with me and Mike Johnson and J.P. Bouvet, and you filmed. Mm -hmm. um, we've been all over the world together. Yeah. But prior to that, I mean, if we go all the way back, you've yeah. lived tons of places, to my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where have you lived? Like, just, just that alone is interesting to me. Um, so to kind of put my life in a nutshell, I, well, I was actually born in Ohio. I spent maybe about six to eight months there and then moved to the Philippines because my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, so Mark and I grew up in the Philippines for maybe seven years. And um, volcano exploded there. It was a crazy story. Mount Pinatubo is the name of volcano, but basically forced us to leave. And that kind of, that was pretty much the last stable place I ever lived was the Philippines. So hold on, Here, here's the, here's the, the question. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody else who's ever been in, in a volcano. Mm. What is that like? Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain. Like, we knew it was going to explode, so we kind of knew what that, that something crazy was going to happen. You know, like, we had heard that the volcano might explode any day, any week, any month. You how, know? how old were you? I was seven. Okay. And um, all of a sudden, I'm at school, uh, and um, some kind of alarm goes off, and we all go outside and see a big plume of smoke, like a huge plume of smoke, like in on the horizon, you know. But it takes up a huge amount of the sky, even though it's like pretty far away, maybe like 40 or 50 miles or something. And I think it took another day or two for it for it to actually hit where we are you know all that ash to come down where we are 
and um, there's just a lot of earthquakes. I remember we had to sleep under our kitchen table uh, for two nights because of the earthquakes. The power was out, so everyone was in the dark. We didn't have a radio or a TV. Um, was there was there ash? It everywhere? was at, yeah. We we woke up the next morning and the whole town was covered in white. It looked like it had snowed all night. <laughs> That's so, crazy. Yeah. So, um, was it? I mean, did did a lot of families? Did anyone get hurt? Not. I mean, I know your family was okay, but did people actually get hurt from that? Um. You know, actually, I don't know about that. Um. Cause like. I mean, I was lucky enough to where I lived on a military base, you know, and, but all around the military base is, you know, I guess you could consider it pretty third world, you know, in, in that part of the Philippines at that part of, at that particular part of time, you know, so I, I really don't know, but it did cause a lot of destruction, and I do know it was something like one of the top 10 biggest um, eruptions in modern history or something like that well i can't imagine that especially at that age Mm -hmm. so did you have to relocate at that point yeah yeah so we had to get on a boat uh that's kind of when my family split up it was me mark and my mom and my dad had to stay behind and we got on a boat we they took us to an island still somewhere in the philippines we spent like two days there uh, and then we took a helicopter out of there, uh, and then eventually ended up in California. And then that's when I started living in the States and and got Americanized. Okay. Yeah. That's really intense to go through at such a young age, I feel like. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. Although it didn't really feel intense, you know, it was just kind of like, this is happening, you know? I guess at that such, at, at that young of an age, um... You know, you don't ever, you don't really think like this is like some big rare event. You know what I mean? Like, I was just letting my parents carry me through it. You know, I remember actually like during it. It's not like it was like everyone was freaking out. I remember like I would make friends at the little campground they put us in. You know, and we'd all be playing with swords and stuff. You know, uh, so we were like it was like a really funny, fun time, like amidst all the chaos that was actually happening yeah do you think your parents were more stressed than you were definitely yeah yeah i would imagine so i mean there was just so much to figure out Mm -hmm. so with you guys having to relocate was that something that um the military helped with like did they help your family get settled in california i'm pretty sure they did yeah okay yeah well that's really good Mm -hmm. That's, that's really good so what was california like and how long how long were you there um, it's, it's kind of, kind of a blur, but, uh, I remember getting to California and my mom kind of like, you know, we didn't have a place to live, so we would jump all around, you know, she'd take Mark and I to these different schools trying to find a new place to live. I remember one time I, you know, Mark and I were at a school for one day. You know, we were like the new kids in class. And then the next day we, we left, you know. We like played heads up, seven up and everything so I could like meet all the new kids. Uh, but yeah, then we just left the next day and never saw them again. So wow. 
the next couple years were like that a lot, just picking up and moving, you know. Um, I think my mom at the time was just trying to find some stability and didn't know the best way or the best place to get that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you did find the stability, did you, I mean, did you stick in one school for a while? Like, when did you, did you go to high school, I guess, and graduate, like, mm -hmm. a normal kid in some way? Yeah. Where was that? Uh, eventually, my mom remarried, um, and so we kind of, like, had a, a family kind of home again, you know? Um, and that was in Southern California, um, in a town called Menifee. Um, and yeah, I went to middle school there. I went to elementary school there, then middle school and then high school. But then in my first year of high school, um, my, my stepdad, the new, the new father figure in the picture, he got stationed to Spain. So we moved to Spain, um, in my first year of high school. Wow. Mm -hmm. Did you yeah. speak Spanish at all at that point? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I definitely did not want to go, you know? Like, it was like the worst possible thing that was happening in my life that I was leaving all my friends behind, you know? That's interesting. And I'm sure that's really hard, but... And I mean, we can talk about this or we can't... We, we don't have to talk about this, but... The other night, you know, we were sort of having a heart to heart about just different stressors in our lives and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like if, if, if I were you and I thought back to that experience, mm -hmm. like, and asked myself those same questions, like, what's the worst case scenario? Mm -hmm. How is this going to play out? Mm -hmm. Like, that seems pretty heavy to deal with mm -hmm. as a ninth grader, mm -hmm. you know, or a 10th grader. Like, how did you deal with that like how, how did you because you had no choice so how did you deal with it was that was that it? it's just I had no choice I got to roll with it or hmm. did you act out against it or did you just kind of make the best of it with, it with was the situation probably a mixture of both you know like I definitely tried to fight it you know and like Mark and I both didn't want to go because we actually formed our first band there in California and we were still in I remember that was the reason I wanted to stay in California the most because we had a band. It was like my first ever band, you know, and moving to Spain was basically like throwing that all away, you know, like all the work we had put into it. I mean, we were only like, you know, I was 14 and Mark was 16 or something like that, you know, but it was like we were both very passionate about it and, you know, it just kind of seemed really unfair that now we have to move and leave that and it was something it was out of our control you know um so i think there was a lot of resentment i remember like the first whole year i was in spain i was just like purposely you know in a childish way like you know letting my parents know that i definitely was not happy you know mm -hmm. like i refused to make friends i refused to like go out and like you know socialize and you know so I just kind of sit at home all day so they could see how upset I was you know you think that was like kind of like a grieving process in a way I think so you know yeah like leaving leaving home behind mm-hmm 
Yeah, it wasn't all just like showing them I'm mad. It was like, yeah, definitely like actually being sad and feeling like I didn't fit in in Spain, you know, like. But I mean, then Spain actually ended up turning into like the golden years of my life, you know, like I'm so glad I moved there and I made friends that are going to last a lifetime and you know i had all my coming of age stories there in spain you know that's awesome the people that you met there that are friends for life now were they other transplants to the military base or were they actual people that were from the the area um yeah most of them pretty much most of them were transplants as well military brats from all over the world that have kind of all been just brought there in you know a lot of them against their will or, you know, just whatever. So we were all in the same boat, you know. And I think that's what made it, like, that's where the bond formed, you know. Like, one of my friends was, like, born and raised in Virginia. And now he's, like, all of a sudden taken away and placed in Spain, you know. And this guy is from, you know, Italy, you know, from a military base there. And, like, you know, so we're all, like, coming and going from these, like, uh, these special places that we grew up in and being placed there. And, you know, and that actually ended up being what made it so awesome, you know, that we are all going through the same thing. And to, to me, it seems like that's the, those experiences were the foundation for even the rest of your story and what you do now. Mm. It seems to me based on what I know about you, that you don't have a problem being anywhere in particular. Finding a place to sleep, traveling on a whim, going to a new place, and not being intimidated by it mm-hmm. seems like something that you very much have under control. Uh-huh. You know? And, yeah. I mean, obviously you can talk about that kind of stuff, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like there was a pretty fundamental period in yeah. that regard. I think uh, definitely, like, that... You know, because I'm kind of the, yeah, as, as you were saying, I'm kind of like, uh, maybe uh, I would say I'm kind of a chameleon. No matter where I'm at in the world, I feel comfortable, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with my childhood, you know. Like, I never had, you know, long-term stability. It was always change. So change just kind of feels... Like, it needs to happen, you know? Did you ever feel like you wanted that stability in your life, though? I mean, how did you, how did you go about finding that? Um, or, or how are you trying to discover that sort of stability? I feel like now, at this point in my life, like, I don't think I've ever really found true. Like, when I think of stability, I think of, like, you know, having lived in a place for, like, 10 years or something, you know, where you know everyone in town or, you know, you have this support system or, you know what I mean, like um, long-term friends that you've seen every day and you grow up with and you go through these big experiences with, you know. I mean, I have friends that I've known for a long time, like all you guys, but... Um, you know, 
we go on tour and we don't see each other for four or five months, you know, and then like, and that's kind of how it is with all my friends, really. Like, I, I can't think of one friend other than my wife, Louise, who has been just a consistent part of my everyday life for years, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. But I guess that's another form of stability too, is, is, you know, having strong bonds that don't require you to be in the same room all the time. Mm. That's a pretty awesome thing to have. And, And I see it all the time. Whenever we are on tour, we'll be in like the most obscure place ever and you're like oh me and mark are going to hang out with like a friend from high school and it's this mm. random part of the world that you would never expect to know anybody um but that's kind of cool to me you know it, it definitely it makes sense as far as what i know about you and your story so after um after high school and those quote-unquote golden years what was next did you go to college did you go to university um n- well I remember right after graduating high school in Spain, we moved to back to California, like pretty much like a week later. And at first I was stoked, you know, like, uh, <laughs> cause like in Spain, you know, you miss things like Taco Bell and like, you know, <laughs> cause the only f- really like, you know, Spanish food is kind of like pretty much like seafood, which is great. You know, but after going through four years of it, you're like, I just want some Taco Bell or something. Yeah, you, know? you want like a, a big <laughs> plate of American burger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was like stoked. I was like, yeah, I'm going back to California. I'm going back to what I was like missing really bad that first year I was in Spain. You know, I, I was going back to see all my old friends again. You know, and it actually turned out like it was just you know, not what I was expecting at all. Like all my friends who I had before, they'd all grown up, been through high school together, had their own social connections and friendships. And I was kind of like excluded from all that. And uh, yeah, moving back to California was like not good at all. I went in another funk, you know, Mm -hmm. and I did go back to community college or I did go to community college um, but that kind of just turned into, uh, you know, I wasn't motivated, you know, I didn't like want to learn. So I ended up dropping out after like two years and, um, I got a job at a home loans company called Countrywide, um, and worked there about two years, not really enjoying it, but I was making money. I wasn't able to save money. Um, so I was just kind of like just coasting through life and just meandering and not really having a direction and kind of just existing did you did you have a creative outlet at that point i mean were you still playing music with mark at that time or was it pretty much just like wake up go to work go to sleep yeah yeah it was like definitely no creative outlet i wasn't working on anything wasn't working on hobbies you know um it was just like wake up go to work come back and like grab a 40 and drink it watch tv and go to bed and do it all over again were you like a weekend warrior like you like you lived for the weekend at that point or was that even kind of just like yeah the the weekend was just a a, yeah it was just like it's not like i would go out and do stuff you Mm -hmm. know it was actually like a pretty dark time i remember you know 
were you living out in California by yourself at that point, or was Mark and friends with you, you know, as well? Mark was living in Madrid in Spain going to college, and then he eventually moved to Washington, D.C., uh, so I, he probably was in D.C. at the time, and it was I was living with my mom and my little brother, Nathan. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So then you made the move to D.C. at some point, too. Was that pretty much right after the Countrywide experience? Yeah, so I worked at Countrywide about two years, and then it felt like my only way out. Like, I, I remember being pretty miserable at this point in my life, and I was like, the only way out is joining the military. So I like signed up for the Air Force, you know, I went to, you know, I got drug tested, took the ASVAB, you know, like they placed me in a really good position. I was going to be a linguist where they'd give me like something like a $10,000 signing bonus. And like, I was like, this is it. This is my ticket, you know, and I was stoked about it. And then like literally like three days before I was, I guess, I don't know the official word for it, but I guess getting sworn in, you know, uh, Mark called me from DC and asked me if I wanted to move out there and join his band, Haunted Shores, you know? Wow. So all of a sudden now I was placed with these two options, you know, like the military or Haunted Shores, you know, which by the way, it didn't mean like I was going to go over there and make a bunch of money making music, you know? Like they, no, but it, it's a huge, huge change. Yeah, like very different, you yeah. know. So, yeah, eventually I, I decided to move to D.C., you know. So was it easy to actually get out of going forward with the Air Mil- Force? Um, like, yeah, it was, physically it was easy. I just pretty much called him and said, you know, I'm not going to do it. But like mentally it was hard. You know, like mentally it was hard because, you know, I'd already convinced myself and I was already stoked about it that I wanted to do it, you know. Um, How did you make that decision? Like what was, because I I bet you there's a lot of people that have those kinds of decisions in their lives where it's like, do you do this thing that could give you a potential stable career going forward? mm -hmm. Or do you do this thing that is completely uncertain but Mm. feels right but feels right you know what i mean like what and obviously mm. you chose what feels right to you yeah was it a pretty easy decision i, I understand that the process mm-hmm. and like sort of the um the debriefing of it yeah. took took some time to deal with but like was it an easy decision to make i don't think it was easy but yeah i think that's like the big dilemma that a lot of people are having right like do I do what I want to do or do I do what will bring me stability, you know, or like get me on my feet financially or whatever, you know? And I guess I've always, I guess my personality is more some, someone that uh, will do whatever brings me the most experience, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I think at the time it felt like moving to DC and joining a band uh, was gonna be the kind of experience I was looking for, you know? Like, much more than the military, you know? Cause, um, you know, the thing about the military is, 
yeah, you get to travel the world and all that, but you're, you know, you're in a chain of command, you know, you have a superior who has a superior, you know, and you're doing whatever they tell you to do, you know, whereas joining a band, you become your own boss, you know, I think that was the main appeal for it with me, you know. You wanted to have the control over your life at any given point. Yeah. 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 Well, that's awesome. So you move to D.C. Mm-hmm. You start playing in Hornet Shores with Mark. Mm-hmm. Then I met you a... guys. Right. Yeah. But see, I don't... When did... I don't know if I met you around that time. Oh, I, yeah. At some... But way before that, I think you... Well, so to, from my understanding of the story, you were in D.C. You were playing in Hornet Shores. You were recording stuff. Mm-hmm. You are playing some shows. Yeah, we played a couple little shows. Okay. At what point then, though, did you decide, I'm going to peace out of D.C.? Because mm. didn't you leave again? Yeah. So where, what was that about? So that was like, uh, I started working at a uh, law firm as, like I guess, a paralegal, even though I wasn't trained as a paralegal at all. And that was in D.C.? Yeah. How did you get that job? <laughs> Uh, from my buddy Nick Dodd. Okay. Yeah. His mom uh, hooked me up with it. I actually, when I first got to D.C., when I, I drove across the country, my first night there was at... Uh, M- Mark had... Um, so to give you backstory, Nick is... He was a singer in Haunted Shores. So he was my soon-to-be bandmate, you know. And... So he and Mark threw like a little welcoming party for me at their house, at Nick's house in Virginia, you know. And so I got there, became really good friends with Nick and, you know, all of his friends. And uh, I met his mom, who uh, was super nice. And she just wanted to give me work because when I got there, I only had about 200 bucks. And so she was like really nice and she was just like, you know, you can work on my garden, you know, I'll pay you to work on my garden. So I worked there at her garden for like a month. And then after that was all done, she was like, well, I guess you can work at my law firm, you know. So you had a chance to learn about gardening. Had you ever done that before? Mm-mm. Did no. you, did like, was there someone above you there that showed you how to do it? No. no. How'd you figure that out? Um, it was like day by day. You know, she'd be like, hey, can you mulch the garden? And I'd have to, like, look up what mulching is, you know? Was there even, like, YouTube or Google at this point? Um, there, I would, like, Google it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there, there was Google back then. This was, like, 2005 or something, you know? Okay. YouTube wasn't as big yet, but, yeah, there was resources. So I'd, like, you know, mulch this, and then, like, I'd find out that I didn't mulch enough, you know? Or, or whatever, like I'd do a bad job, then I'd have to do, you know, so I was like, I'd have to get better at it each day, you mm-hmm. know, and um, and also there was this electrician named Gary who would come around and I'd help him wire stuff in the house and stuff too. Well, so you're learning lots of stuff mm-hmm. while playing in a band and just kind of figuring it out. Yeah. Figuring out what you want to do. Yeah. Okay, so you did that, then you started working as a paralegal, uh huh, and then what's next after that? And then, um, I guess, you know, I'd lived at this point. You know, I I, I was living in D.C. You know, playing with the band, 
um, maybe for about four, five years. I think it was in 2009 when I actually left. Um, but it was, you know, kind of the same thing that I went through in California with the home loans company, you know, like, I think it was like being stuck inside all day, not doing what like I truly wanted to do, which at that point I wasn't sure about what I wanted to do, you know, but I just knew this wasn't it, you know? And I remember like looking outside the window in the office and like seeing all these people, like just being all happy riding bikes or like whatever. And like, here I am, you know, I'd be stuck inside all day and I get off work and then I'm too tired to do the things that I actually want to do. So I go home and make a dinner and then go to bed and do it all over again, you know? So the societal norm is not really for you, is what you kind of learned, I mm-hmm. think, over those bunch of years. Yeah. Through a lot of years. Yeah. And I'd try to fight it, too. Like, I'd, I'd try to, like, force my mind to adapt to fitting in, you know? Like... Because, you know, in my head, my logic was obviously everyone else here is doing it and they're content with this lifestyle. So there must be something wrong with me, you know. Um, And so I try. So I need it was like a problem that needed to be fixed, you know. That's it's Yeah, I get it. It's it's really cool, though, because now I would imagine you can look back or at least from the outside perspective, from my perspective, I look at this and I say, well, it kind of makes sense because you didn't really have a normal childhood with stability. You weren't, you didn't grow up in one house, in one place and go to one school with the same friends and then get a job in your hometown. It, you've been already up until this point of your life, you've been all over the place. You started your life with adventure. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much continued even up until this point. So it makes sense to me that the stagnant aspect of working in an office mm-hmm. is not for you. That yeah. totally makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you got fed up. I got fed up. And eventually, I remember, uh, actually what changed everything was, like, bicycles, you know? Like, my buddy, like, let me ride his bicycle to the grocery store because, like, I didn't want to drive my car or something. You know, and it was like an old road bike and it wasn't in good shape. But, you know, at this point I hadn't ridden a bike since I was like uh, maybe eight years old. So I like got on it and remembered how awesome it was. I was like going up and down curbs and like, you know, it was just like a really liberating feeling, mm-hmm. you know, like going like just as fast as city traffic, you know, but like not being stuck in traffic, you know, just like weaving through like it was just an awesome feeling you know and so I got really into biking like during the last year of my life in DC and like it kind of like and and then I discovered like bike touring I was like watching videos online of like people who do bike tours you know and in my head I was thinking like that's what I want to do like whatever that guy is going through I want to like put myself in that situation, you know, I don't know if I'm going to like it or hate it, but I was like, this is just something that needs to happen or else I'm going to be wondering about it the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. So I had to figure out a way to transition 
from, you know, my life in D.C. where I have, you know, you know, I had like my own stuff, like a, like furniture and like a nice computer and a, my own bed and a car and, you know, and like not to mention all my friends and all that. Like, um, so I, I, I had to transition from this with with my job and everything to I guess I had an idea of me being like this, you know, uh, lone traveler. Nomad. Nomad, yeah. Yeah. Who who only owns the things that fit on his bicycle. You know what I mean? Like, that's all I own. Like, I wanted to get rid of everything and not only just have everything in there, but be okay mentally with having everything. You You know what I mean? Like cutting all those things down to being that person and that was like a year long or maybe even two year long transition getting it finally getting into that nomadic lifestyle so what was the first step to doing that after dc was that the fish farm story yeah so it wasn't i mean realistically i knew i can't just maybe some people could just like give away everything and then just go buy a bike and just go, you know? But... Not everybody is Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> most, like, most people aren't, you know? And, like, you know, it's... Because I think that's what stops people the most, is giving up these things that we become attached to, you know? And I was attached to a lot of these things. So I knew I had to systematically get rid of them. And... I met my my buddy Dylan, who I actually met in Spain. He's one of my high school friends. That's gonna be my friend forever. He's one of my best friends. But I, uh, he uh, came to visit DC, and I I always remembered him as this like pale, skinny, white, short kid, you know. But then he came to visit, and he was like, uh he just looked like he had been through a lot of shit in the past year or so, you know, Mm -hmm. like he had like long hair. He was like golden bronze in December, you know, like, and he told me he had just gotten back from living in Honduras for a year, scuba diving, you know, for like a year in some tin shack that he was spending like 20 bucks a month for. And I just thought that was, that was so cool. I was like, how do I, you know, get to that point. And he's just like, I don't know, man, you just got to do it, you know? And like, and, and then he was, uh, so I was like, so what did you do? You know, how did, what, what kind of started this for you? And he had told me about this job in Alaska, you know, the salmon hatchery. Basically he worked there for a summer. Um, so, it's like this you know you're at a salmon hatchery you are working with fish you're spawning eggs you know and uh you're you're real quick not uh, to interrupt you so what is a salmon hatch what's the purpose of it uh, okay so a salmon hatchery is so without salmon hatcheries um we're eating too much fish as a human species you know so uh we need to um, we need to make more, you know, so we can eat more. So basically it's this facility where they'll, um, 
grow some fish, like a bunch of fish, millions of fish, million of salmon, raise them till they get to a certain age, and then set them free into the wild. And then these salmon will swim around the Pacific Ocean for three, four years. And salmon have this like sense where they go back to where they were born eventually to die or spawn and then die. And so they would always swim back to the hatchery every summer without fail, you know. And whatever batch of salmon came in, that was the, the ones that this, the uh, hatchery had grown three or four years prior, you know. Yeah. So it was like pretty cool. And so as the fish are swimming back in, there's fishermen like at the lip of the bay, you know, just like with big nets, like waiting for them to catch them. But, you know, the salmon hatcheries kind of tell them like, okay, you guys can only catch so much. You got to let this many through, you know. Um, So the hatcheries regulate that. They let this much fish through. The fish swim into the hatchery up a fake river because when salmon like are ready to spawn they go f- they look for the fresh water that's dumping into the ocean right. you know so we the hatchery had to build like this fake freshwater river so all these fish are like swimming up this river which is actually going into the hatchery where they're about to get like electrocuted and shocked and then cut open by people like me and have their eggs pulled out of them and have some other guy squirting fish jizz onto those eggs, you know? Which, and then... And then it starts the process over. Yeah. They spawn mm-hmm. more eggs. Yeah. Or more salmon. And then they set them free and come back eventually. Yeah. And I remember something like, it's called the fecundity rate. Basically, like, if we didn't, um, you know, intervene with nature... If we were just let them spawn in the wild, it's something like a 10 to 15% fecundity rate, like these eggs actually becoming adults. But in the hatchery, it was something like a 99.6% fecundity rate. So although you're sort of ending the lives of the fish after they've had a nice full run, so to speak, it's positive in that you're helping more fish to be born and have lives, essentially. Yeah. And then feed feed people, people like us yeah right mm-hmm. so you ended up going there and working yeah. there mm-hmm. is the long story short yeah that that was like my first you know my first um you know i guess journey outside of dc i quit my job and a week later i flew to alaska you know which whoever is listening i would highly suggest if you're ever stuck in a position where you just want to get out of but you don't know where or what to do because you're worried about money or whatever like this the reason this job was so good was because first of all they take pretty much anyone who's able-bodied and willing to work you know and uh you just have to pass a drug test but you know that's easy you know um and then they pay for your food and housing for however long you live there you know um, you just had to pay for your flight there, pay for some rain gear, which costs about a hundred bucks for the good stuff, and maybe another ninety bucks for some rain boots or for some like these hardcore like yeah uh, fisherman boots. But you know once you so you make that investment and then you can you know you don't have to worry about anything 
while you're there. You know, you don't have to worry about rent, bills, you know, like it's, it was just, it's just a great way to transition out of, you know, this stressful life that I had in DC into, you know, the next step, you know? Yeah. Without having to worry about the bills, you can kind of take the parts of your mind that are occupied there and Mm -hmm. frame up into the next step maybe, or whatever it is that you're doing in the moment. Yeah. So how long were you there for? I was there about three months. Okay. Three months. Uh, it was, you know, I mean, it was great. Like it was really hard work. Uh, but it's like work that I felt like I needed to do, you know, uh, I had never like really touched a fish ever, you know, in my life before that. And, you know, now, and by the end of it, I was like this grizzled, like, you know, fish killing machine, you know, that Alaskan, you know, I was like going on hikes. I'd see bears every single day. Like they're just there walking around the hatchery, you know? Was nature a big part of that for you? Like a, a big part of you being able to let go of the, the, the normalcy of city life, so to speak, mm-hmm. was the, the, the natural aspect of that something that really, you know, affected you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess like, you know, I, I'm naturally drawn to nature, you know. Uh, I have a belief that everyone really truly is deep down you know even if we don't know it yet you know a lot of people will say oh no I hate nature like I hate like why would you want to go out there there's nothing to do out there you know but um yeah that's like the most calm place for me ever is just being in nature that's why I think I love having my dog so much Mm -hmm. is because it gives me a reason every day to go outside yeah go to the woods go for a walk yeah and just be around the, the the life that's there I mean you know? to me it's like it is real life you know like it is real life like it's actually it's what's actually happening you know like I mean yeah things are actually happening you know in our cities and things like that but you know there's something happening underlying all of that you know because cities are part of nature too you know, yeah. like everything is natural, you know, but if we want to look at nature in its rawest form, untouched by humans, you know, like, I don't know, that, that to me is just like real life. And it's been just really important to me to not forget that and stay in touch with it, you know? Um, so, yeah. So what was, what was the next step after the three months there? Um, so I had planned on once I'm done with that trip, uh, once I'm done with Alaska, I would fly to Seattle and uh, bike down the Pacific Coast, basically down to San Diego. Like, and I guess the uh, you know that's that obviously starts from the whole bike touring thing, like my desire to be on a bike, traveling like that. Um, but uh yeah it was just like i don't know like it was really scary well first of all i remember when i was riding my bike around dc i hurt my knee you know and 
when you know when you get injured you automatically think the worst you know like this is gonna last forever or I'm you know this is something so when I hurt my knee I was like I was in so bummed I thought my knee is gonna be hurt forever and I'm never gonna ride a bike again so I told myself and you know my knee was hurt for like weeks or maybe even like two or three months or something you know and I told myself like if I ever get better again then I'm gonna ride my bike across the country you know like that's how much I don't know like being injured kind of changed me in that way in a good way it gave you the, the determination to sort of fight against the ailment yeah and prove that you could do something not just like you know riding down the street from work to your house but something pretty extreme mm-hmm right? yeah and it made me realize how uh, how I had taken my health for granted, you know, like, which is, you know, something I still do all the time. And I think a lot of people still do is we take what we already have for granted. You know what I mean? It's not until we lose something, uh, that we realize, you know, it's, it's like how, when you feel sick, when you get sick, like how amazing being healthy again feels, you mm-hmm. know, or how it must, must feel. But then once you get well again, a couple of days later, it just you're just like ah whatever you know. Yeah. It's like uh, back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's those constant reminders that we all need, mm-hmm. but hopefully they don't show up in the form of a busted knee or a sickness. Yeah. I mean we can make the choice to think about those things every day. I mean ideally that's you know that would be great if I could rem- if you know we could remember to stay aware of that you know all the time whether we're sick or healthy be grateful for what we do have you know so but yeah anyways um like so yeah that's kind of like the main motivation for that bike tour so flew to seattle my buddy had sent my bike there so i had picked it up um actually my my friend picked me up from the airport in seattle I spent about four or five days with him in um, in Whidbey Island, uh, maybe like an hour north of Seattle or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, and went, bought a tent, um, got my some camping gear, got my, and but my bike wasn't arriving in the mail until like a certain day, so I couldn't just leave yet. Uh, so yeah, I spent that couple of days just kind of decompressing from Alaska, getting, you know, reacquainted with society again. Because in Alaska, I'd only lived with like six or seven people, and there was no internet, no TV, no phones, you know. So it was a really, you know, big transition. Big transition, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, um, yeah, so. And then the bike came in the mail and I just started biking, you know, like, um, and it was like, I definitely had brought way too much stuff with me, you know, like once I, I I thought, okay, I'm easily going to be able to fit all this stuff on my bike, like seeing it all laid out in front of me. I had like a tent sleeping bag. I had like two weeks worth of clothes. I had, you know, 
two pairs of shoes, you know, like one like for hiking and one for like for just everyday activities, you know. I think I even had like a little laptop, you know. Uh, and I tried to like fit all that on my bike. So in the end, I had two big uh, saddlebags. I had a big bag sitting on the top of my rear rack on my bike. Then I had a giant backpack, like a hiking backpack on my back. And I had a little backpack on top of that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it would take a long time to go from Seattle to San Diego. Yeah. With, uh, with all that stuff. So, I mean, did you ditch? Yeah. I mean, like, quickly, like, two miles down the road, I realized that this is not, you know, this is not going to cut it. Like, uh, I was hurting really bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, my back really hurt, and, like, I, the bike was heavy and cumbersome, and I was like, uh, yeah, this isn't going to work. So I went to a post office, mailed, like, 60 70 percent of it all back and kept just the necessities tent sleeping bag like two days worth of clothes and like a little stove you know uh and like random like tools like bike parts and things like that and narrowed it down to like just two those two saddle bags and a little bag on top you know so nothing on my back which was actually the key you know Wow. If you're doing a bike tour, don't ever put anything on your back. You know, make sure everything is fitting on the bike. And, um, yeah. But, I mean, so that first day I biked about 20 miles. And I was, like, destroyed, you know, at the end of that day. And I remember getting, you know, I, I was just like, I'm just going to bike until um, I get tired or the sun goes down or whatever you know i was still kind of in the mode this is my first day of being like a real nomad you know so i was like stoked and scared you know it was like really scary and i wanted to do it in this way where like i'm just not gonna plan it at all i'm just gonna do it and let whatever happens just happen you know so i biked until it got dark and I remember just like pulling off the side of this road I was on and going walking into the woods about 10, 20 feet and just setting up my tent there and sleeping, you know? And um, that was like an interesting night because I really, really wanted to give up right there. Mm-hmm. Like, I, because I'd only biked 20 miles, but I was destroyed and I had about 1,800 more to go, you know? And like, it's just, it was just so daunting to me, like getting down to San Diego. I was like, what am I doing? You know, like, and my mom had like told me earlier that day, she's like, just so you know, if you ever want to give up, uh, or if you ever, you know, if you want me to, I'll come and pick you up, you know? So like, um, I was like, you know, I could end this at any time and just have my mom come pick me up and I could be like laying on her couch, watching a movie with some hot chocolate or something, you know? Um, And I, like, was about to do that. Like, I was about to just call her and be like, can you come pick me up? But I was just like, all right, I'm just going to wait till tomorrow and see how I feel, you know? And so, yeah, I woke up, and 
packed up my stuff, still in my head, not sure what to do. You know, am I going to bike today or am I going to call my mom? And I just like packed my stuff up and got on the bike and started riding, you know, and it felt a little better than yesterday. I was a little bit stronger and I think I biked 30 miles that day. And then, you know, I was like, this is fine. I'm doing it, you know, went to bed, woke up, did I think 40 miles. And then by then, like, it just felt really nice. And I was like strong by the uh, fourth or fifth day, I was like doing like 50 or 60 miles. And, um, you know, before I knew it, I was in Oregon. And then, yeah, you know, consecutive days later, I ended up in San Diego. And it was, uh, I mean, that, that whole stretch of time is like a big adventure in itself. You know, it'd take a long time to talk about everything that happened then. So it, funny enough, I was actually thinking about that because I feel like there's certain things that I, I know of from that story that I would love to dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that story in and of itself, as you said, is pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, you, I think you really discovered a lot about who you are, obviously, mm-hmm. from going from, from wanting to quit to pushing through day by day, minute by minute. Mm-hmm. I think you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. But um, I, I think we should do like a part two where we actually dig in really to like that first night. Because, yeah. I, cause, you know, I remember you telling me that that was one of like the most terrifying nights of your life, love yeah. your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some other really cool experiences along that trip that you've told me about that I think would be cool for people to hear about. Um, so we should really do a part two, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm down. And like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm like mentally I'm trying to figure out what should I talk about and what should I leave out you know because there's so much within these stories that's happening that is like really important in my opinion but I don't want to like bore everyone with like the little details you know what I mean I don't think any I mean I'm sitting here like on the edge of my seat this whole time enjoying your story and I feel really good about hearing this from you because of the conversation that we had the other day because, you know, it's amazing to me that someone who has done as much as you've done, who's, mm-hmm. overco- who's overcome as much as you've overcome, mm-hmm. can have moments of weakness and self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Which, it's just a good reminder that no matter how strong of a person you are or what you've been through, everybody goes through that. Mm-hmm. And when I hear your story, it, it's like, well, I, I've lived a sheltered life pretty much. <laughs> and I feel like a little baby mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. So, I mean, I respect so much about your story thus far Mm -hmm. and I respect so much about the things that you've pushed yourself through to where it almost blows my mind that any one of us in the band could ever give you advice on Mm -hmm. things like this because you know I think that I could learn way more from you personally Mm -hmm. that's just my personal feeling so that hopefully that makes you feel good and and confident about the things that you know you're going through personally Mm -hmm. as big or as small as they may be I think the things that you've overcome already give you all the tools and all of the uh, all of the strength you need to to power through anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I hope you feel that way. I do, and it's you know it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I don't look at myself and the experiences that I've had like that. I know a lot of people would say it's very adventurous and I'm, you know, 
And I do agree it's like been really adventurous, but I don't really look at myself as someone like, because I've done all this, then I am somehow like more enlightened or knowledgeable or wise or something, you know? Because, uh, but I do understand what you're saying, you know? Like I could see how people would look at that and think that. Because I remember looking at like my buddy Dylan and thinking that, you know? I mean, you're always gonna run into different challenges, but what I think you've developed throughout this whole process is the, is the ability to take risks quickly mm. and, and in a calculated fashion to whatever degree you can calculate something. Um, it's that zero to one thing. Yeah, once you go from zero to one, mm-hmm. And you get moving, you're gonna encounter all sorts of bumps in the road. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who could learn from your story mm-hmm. that if they are stagnant or uncomfortable or unhappy, the hardest part mm-hmm. for a lot of people is making the decision to make a change. Mm-hmm. You've done that so much in mm-hmm. your life and continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I think I admire most about you is that you're willing to make those changes mm-hmm. and you're willing to see what happens. And that is proactive. That's what we were talking about the other night. It's like, do we wait for things to affect us and then go from there? Or do we make decisions and be proactive and control the outcome of our of our lives and our situation? And I think, if anything, from this conversation, you absolutely have shown over and over that you're good at making decisions for yourself to get moving mm-hmm. when you're in a place that you don't feel good about. Yeah. that's That, to me, is, is inspiring cool and it's very very cool yeah so there's there's a lot more to talk about i mean one i think it'd be really great to hear the specifics of the bike trip um i'd be you know you've worked on a farm Mm -hmm. you married a girl from another country Mm -hmm. um you've toured all over the world with with periphery and done a ton of different jobs um and even now i mean your current position as a lighting director uh is more of the same for you it's like here's this challenge Am I going to let the big mountain of a challenge in front of me stop me from doing this, or am I going to tackle it head on? And we can dig into this again, but it's so cool to see like you starting on like house light boards, mm. to like renting light boards, to now you own your whole own light rig, mm-hmm. and you're designing your own vision of what you know what lighting can be like in a live show setting. That's pretty cool. So. If you're down, I'd love to do a part two where we actually dig into the specifics of like, you know, the next chapter of this where, mm. you know. Leading up to now. Leading up to of. now and, and some of the, the good stories that, that I know about from these trips. But yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. So we got some more time on this tour. We got some more days off. So we'll get it in then. But um, cool. yeah, man, it's just, it's really cool to, to it's, it's cool to hear you talk about this in this light because only your small group of friends know this stuff. Mm-hmm. And hopefully now more people will get to hear about this. And I think it's great for those of those periphery fans that know you to know more about you. But I think everybody can take away the lessons mm-hmm. uh, from this conversation just based on what you've done, whether you, whether you think that the decisions you made have been impactful or big or small. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can l- listen to this and take something away. So... Thanks for being willing to, you know, talk to me about it. It's very, very cool. No, I mean, I'm, it, it, 
excites me knowing that someone out there might find it inspiring enough to do something like that of their own, you know, because it, it kills me when I hear or meet people that want to do something like this, but they can't. In their words, they can't for some reason, yeah. you know. And I know there's a lot of real, you know, situations out there. Like maybe you have kids or maybe you can't quit your job or, you know. But, yeah, it's a really deep, interesting subject. And it's stuff that I really like uh, exploring with people, you know. Like finding the difference between what we want to do and, you know, what we're kind of stuck with, you know. And maybe even identifying, like... You know, because I meet people like who say, oh, man, I wish I could travel the world. Like, I really want to do that someday. And I say, like, well, why don't you? And they say, well, you know, I really like my job and, you know, I, I really don't want to leave my hometown. And then I'll say, well, then you don't really want to, you know, like, I think people think they want something, but they don't, you know. Or so maybe a better thing would be to really weigh out what do you really want to do? You know, do you want to stay in this hometown or do you want to travel the world? You know, which one do you really want to do? Because you can't have both, you know. So, yeah, it's an interesting concept and, and it's stuff that I'm still learning about all the time. You know, I'm still constantly having to make all these decisions, you know, and uh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, you're definitely a learner. That's one of your strengths, I think, is is being able to find interest in things and then immerse yourself in learning about them and then applying them. So I'd love to talk more about that specifically too. But yeah, so we'll uh, we'll get this one out for people cool. to listen to. And, and if there's any questions or if anybody wants to know more details of any stories, just let us know. And um yeah, I, I think we should wrap up. But, dude, I'm pretty inspired right now. So thank you for your, for yeah. your story and for your time. So Thanks we'll for be, having me. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back. This was the uh, first episode of, uh, of Chocolate Croissant Satellite hmm. uh, where I'm out on tour and I get to interview people like Jeff who are pretty fucking cool. So we'll be back and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening. Take it easy.